Welcome to tonight's special event at the Apple Store Regent Street in London. Would you please welcome our host for this evening, founder of Decoded Fashion, Liz Basilar. Hello, hello. Thanks everyone for being here. Thank you so much for inviting us. It was such a pleasure to get a call from Apple and bring Decoded Fashion to London once again. I also want to thank Faye. Everyone, many of you know Faye. She manages our community here in London. Faye's back there. Thank you so much, Faye, for putting this together. Um, our meetups have a very defined format. They start with an industry chat on the intersection of fashion and tech, or a presentation, an interview. And then we move on to demos from startups that we think you should know, startups that we find all around the world. So tonight, we are focusing on social shopping and fit. Uh, we're going to start with a story, a quick story of Decoded. Many of you don't know Decoded fashion. And then we're going to move on to a chat on fit, one of my favorite topics. And then you're going to see two demos from Shoreditch, right? Two startups, social shopping startups that we love. They're brand new that you should know. Okay, so the story starts in 2011. That's when a bunch of startups started popping up, really tackling this notion of disrupting fashion and retail. Uh, they all started in a social kind of way. Remember snap a picture, share with your friends? There was a bunch of that. Uh, in New York, my God, there was one in each corner. And I could see all of that excitement bubbling up. And we also saw a lot of discounting. We saw a lot of, we saw guilt and so many in that category, right? But more, more uh, innovation was coming up our, our way. On the other side, I saw an industry that was a little unaware of the power of these technologies and not really talking to them, taking meetings with them, with the little guys, with the setup guys, who are these people? And no collaborations were really taking place. So I started thinking about this. How can we create a platform to bring both worlds together and have both kinds of people in the room, creators, designers, heads of brands, and startup founders, and see what happens? So that was 2012, New York. It was the first event in the world at Lincoln Center that brought together high, high caliber brands with amazing startups. Like that day, there were people who didn't know what Tumblr was and Pinterest was. And that day, the KNY announced its Tumblr, Calvin Klein announced its Tumblr. It was a beautiful event. I want to show some visuals for you. I don't want the audio to be too loud, so I'll talk over. And it was pretty, pretty surreal. We show a mix of hardware, software. We had panels and presentations. The event itself was not really disruptive. Was, what was disruptive was the audience, the mix of the audience. It was about 700 people. Events at that stage, they were in the industry, they were invitation only. They were membership or they were industry only. And if you were found or trying to meet a brand or learn more, there was no way in. This was the first event that you could buy a ticket or present, be part of it, a little more democratic. Then where do we go from there? Well, we set our eyes in London. There was some short ditch tech city excitement going on here. I hopped on a plane, came here to check it out. And we had a great, great support. We had great support from Index Ventures, edited from Shoreditch, and, and Marks and Spencer. We made an announcement, $50,000 for the best idea of fashion and tech, best early stage startup. And it was a young British girl who won the competition, Snap Fashion. And it was really cool to, to show them other, to show the industry other ideas aside from Snap a Picture, Social. There were so many things that they augmented reality. It was mind blowing. So that's when we started the competition. That day we also recognized 
Natalie Massenet for being this incredible figure that came from a tech company. I mean, we see Net-A-Porte as a tech company of sorts, becoming a leader for the industry worldwide. And it happened right here in London. So where do we go from there? We saw that startups from around the world, they still do not have access to the world's top brands. So what can we create to give them access to that? Oh, sorry, 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 let's rewind. There was something that we needed to fix first. There were some problems that startups were missing. B2B problems, great opportunities to work with brands and not just focus on the consumer, but focus on changing the creators, right? Influencing the brands, building with them. So we had the idea, what about a hackathon? Believe me, it took me many months to get the permission to use that word because it sounded illegal. Uh, but we did it. We did it. We came to Condé Nast, the Council of uh, uh, Fashion Designers of America, and we did the world's first fashion hackathon. And I'm not making this shit up. It's real. I was a journalist for 10 years. This is fact-checked by the New York Times. And it was incredible. So that day, we brought a, an amazing group of brands. We started the hackathon with designers giving their problems. The hackers, the entrepreneurs, mixing it up with a UI and creating, imagine creating apps in 24 hours, if you've never seen it, it's an amazing site. And then we had a summit, a big day, a presentation in which those, those the best ones, the five of them, the finalists, came to Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week. They presented between Calvin Klein and Ralph Lauren shows. And it was incredible. It was in the tents. But what I want to show you with this slide is that if you have never seen a hackathon, well, get ready. We're coming to London. In May, the ha Fashion Hackathon will happen here. The site just went live a couple minutes ago. It's london14.decoderfashion.com. There isn't much there to tip you off on the caliber and amazing celebrities we're going to have that day and brands, but stay tuned, you're going to know. I want to show you what that day will look like here. So you have the hackathon, very techy environment. We had that day, if you're devs, if you're in tech here in the room right now, that day we had about 600 people registered, 450 people actually took the challenge. 45% of them were women, were female hackers. That was incredible at a national level. That's the beauty of fashion, right? It attracts so many of us. That's Candy Pratt's prize from Vogue. Believe me, that was her first hackathon. And then what you see, it's the, the finalists being chosen. The head of the judges was Dirk from Style.com. I know you guys love Style.com around here. And that's when we took everyone to the tents. In the tents, we swapped the judges. The judges became top fashion judges, just like it happened here. It was Zach Posen, it was Gilt, it was the head of the CFDA, and the CEO of Rebecca Minkoff. That's Kokorocha. So that's very, very short video. So see how we transformed the, 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 the runway to be a tech stage. The technology that's being developed, I think and this was kind of funny. I convinced Wired to interview Zach Bozen and Vogue to interview Foursquare. This sounds very easy and straight to the point to you, but it wasn't. But at the end of the day, they loved it. It was beautiful, the crossover. All right. I don't want to make you watch long videos here, but I just want to get you excited because this is coming here. And if you have an idea in the room, if you are thinking about jumping the space, if you just want to taste it, be part of it. It's, it's happening in May. All right, what else can we go? So how can brands, how can startups have access to the world's top brands? Imagine, right? I don't know if you know, the top markets are Paris and Italy. 
Well, we created something called the Mentorship Hub. And we launched that in, in Milan with PT. PT for menswear is the, the world's top stage. And what we did there, we created an area to the left of the stage where startup founders could have meetings with the heads of Prada, Dolce Cabana. I mean, they were kind of pitch meetings, but the purpose was really to have feedback on the product. Is the pricing right? Messaging? Do you like what I just showed you? Is there any chance of me working with you ever? That was quite amazing. In the, on the stage, we had Franco Susani from Vogue. We had Renzo Rosso from Diesel. So that we're having again in October. So what do we have here? We have this series of big events. One that was missing this roster, it's South by Southwest. The site went up yesterday. The mentorship hub is going there. We're going to have 40 heads of brands there at South by Southwest in Austin um, taking meetings with you. The event's free. If you have a badge, just walk right in. If you don't, just let us know. Be part of um, our meetup, and you walk right in. No problem. No need to buy a badge. So what do we? Those, that's the calendar for the year. Those, those are the largest events we have going on. But what do we do in between those big events to stay in touch, to stay connected? We created the global meetups, like the ones that we have here today. So these global meetups, they are happening right now in 12 different countries. Every week, pretty much, we're hitting a different country. We are about 1,700 members now. So if you're not a member, join. And the upcoming cities to the, on, the, on the corner of the slide are cities that we're looking for partners. We are looking for um, leaders in those cities to head a group for us. We work. This is not us. This is us with the local communities. The local communities are the ones who are in charge of the content. We just guide them. So if you want to know what's next, there's a lot of 3D printing coming up, hardware, wearables. If you really want to be plugged in, if you really want to know the startups that are going to launch and really make a lot of noise months before they do, take off your phone right now or your laptop. You have a smartphone? Send me an email. So join our group. And if you send us an email, we'll put you on the, the alert list and the newsletter always tips you off on the best that's out there. But tonight's not about me. Tonight is about our founders. And we're going to bring now to the stage two fit technologies that I really love. I don't know if you know about fit and tech, but it's one of those holy grails out there right now for retailers. We know that fit is something consumers want. There's so many different... Uh, pieces of research and surveys saying when you ask consumers, what is the number one thing that you have in your mind, especially women, when you're making a purchase, what's your priority? Fit usually is the answer. So startups are tackling fit in a different way. There's so many ways. It sounds like straightforward, but it's not. And we're going to have a discussion about that. But first, I'm going to let them demo. All right. So indeed, when it comes to sizes between different brands, that's a huge problem in shopping clothing online, you cannot try it before you buy. And you know what? I'm a, I'm a size small in, in Timberland. I'm size XXL in Abercrombie & Fitch. In most of the brands, none of you would really know what size to buy. The risk of buying is just way too high. Now, the big difference in online shopping and, and, and bricks and mortar shopping, obviously in bricks and mortar, the business model is very simple. You go in, you go to the store, you browse, you try on clothing, and only after you have tried will you buy it? Online is completely the opposite. First you are forced to buy and then when that package arrives at home, will you be able to try? And one of those, and four, 
of, of uh, sorry, 25% of all those all those purchases bought online are being sent back because of mostly because of the wrong fit. So let let's look at what's happening today. Today, the online shops are showing the garments on those beautiful models, on standard sizes, beautiful pictures, but you cannot really see how it fits. Obviously, those stores cannot hire hundreds of models in different body shapes like, like you or, or you or like me to show those pictures. That would be too expensive. What FitsMe does, it asks you to enter your body measurements. It will then show you how this model will go with the same shape and size as yourself. And you can see how this size uh, extra small would fit, it, uh, fit this model and you can see how tight this looks and, and then the size medium looks about right and the size XL looks, about, looks a little bit bigger. That's I believe at Thomas Pink here in the UK. At MEX I was trying out myself, I created my model with different face though and the size medium is, um, I think actually some people like it like this, right? Uh, show offs. Um, and the, you look the quite buff on that picture. <laughs> I ended up uh, uh, choosing an extra large, not XXL, though. But you see, it's it's uh, size is a matter of style, not simply are brands differently differently making the garments. Each of us likes to wear their their clothing just just differently. When you can communicate this to the consumers, when you as consumers can get this fit information, the risk of buying online is much lower. And when when this risk is taken away. The sales will increase, you can buy more easily, and you don't have to worry about returning those purchases. My name's Tom Adiula, I'm the CEO and founder of Metail. Uh, Metail came about really for me from the combination of two things. Um, a personal problem, uh, my girlfriend had real issues with uh, the on online and the offline fitting room experience, trying to find stuff that would work for her. and. Uh, the second part was me seeing some really interesting technology um, that was coming out of Cambridge University in terms of going from photos of uh, things to 3D shape. So uh, having nearly joined Boo.com, uh, a company which spent $130 million back in 1998 but was far too early, I spent a lot of time looking at this space and wondering why nobody had got round to yet solving the problem of online clothing fit. Uh, and for me there are three key issues which I wanted to essentially understand and potentially solve before I dived into creating this company. And that's what I did. So I wanted to understand whether it was possible to create 3D representations of people from very basic information, one. Uh, two, whether it was possible to digitize clothing exceptionally fast and exceptionally cheaply so that you could work with fast fashion retailers at high volume. Uh, and three, could you put um, size and shape of people together with size and shapes of clothing and put that together visually. So um, essentially, sort of, I felt, and after research and creating prototypes and starting the business, I felt that we could build effectively what I hope to do, which is the ultimate fitting room experience. Um, and that revolves around A, being able to allow users to um, buy clothes and, and see them on their own body shape, experiment and create whole outfits, so mix and match outfits as you browse a retailer's website the same way that you like to do it in store and effectively get personalized uh, size and fit recommendations. So by providing all those things together, essentially drop down the barriers to, to shopping. So how do we help retailers and, and where do we focus? We focus actually on a more holistic approach to trying to solve all of the key problems that they have from 
uh, integrating technology really easily and al allowing a really easy process for the, for the user and for the retailer to help reduce returns, um, improve customer engagement with the brand and the retailers, act as a marketing tool to allow them to sort of target users in a different way, increase conversion, and also increase basket size. Um, and that's all driven fundamentally by data. So there are lots of other problems as well that we're looking into now. We're only starting to get to grips with. So for example, you know, of people who are, us, are actually a size 12, what is their actual size and shape? And how can that help make better buying decisions for the retailer? Um, as we started and grown now, we, we, we actually work with retailers in the UK, um, uh, Germany, Brazil, and Asia. Uh, we effectively launched the company commercially in 2012. Um, 2013, we started building operational scale, and now we're looking to sort of work with retailers wholesale across the globe. Um, and it's not just retailers we work with either. So we have a live um, show segment with ITV and the This Morning Show once a month where users at home are invited to style uh, the, the model that's on the show who's come there to ask for help. Ultimately, our, our, our goal actually is to be your shopping companion from morning until night across all formats. So we're an enabling technology that allows a user to, to shop through their own profile rather than the projected ideal. Um, and we aim to be online, in-store, across mobile, through social media and email, um, TV, and actually through publishing. So you wake up in the morning, you decide what to wear, um, clueless style, by flicking through your phone. You then read the magazine, um, see the garment you like, click it through, see it on your body shape, click through to buy. You watch the TV show in the evening, see a garment you like again, um, see that against your body shape, and click through to buy. So we aim to be in all of those formats. Um, and fundamentally, really, what we're doing is about bringing a new strata of data to the world. So a new strata of data that means that we can make effectively uh, more relevant experiences for consumers um, and help retailers make better buying decisions in terms of buying the right type of clothing for their consumers and also better targeting of those consumers. So we're effectively building out a body shape um, database um, and that is what will sort of help make shopping better over the next five years. Because the last five years for me has been putting infinite choice onto the internet, and the next five years is about deciding what of that infinite choice you actually want to buy and, and where and what will fit you right and what are the right type of styles for your shape and profile. So Thank let's shake things up a little. So fit, there's so many ways to tackle, right? So when you think of the largest startups out there in the world right now, when I say large, I mean by number of clients using them right now, revenue, they are widgets that you add to the shopping cart. You pretty much add your measurements or you, by comparing other sizes from other brands, very easy to onboard for the brands. And that's pretty much it. They're mixed results, but that's as far as they go. And then you guys decided that visual was important in a different way, right? You went ahead and, made, and, and, and embraced the assumption that we want to see ourselves in the app, right? There's an, I, I can upload a picture of myself and I see myself. Um, why? Why does that matter? Um, I mean, I very much felt that the visual element was really important because actually our senses in buying something is, is actually in the eyes and the feeling and the touch. So it's all of those senses together. And being able to see combinations of clothes against skin tone and shape is really important in deciding whether you're going to buy something or not. 
And actually for us, that's been really strongly validated with the ITV program because the guest on the show has generally tended to choose the most submitted look by the public rather than stylish choice in the majority of cases. So people can visually see quickly what type of garments and combinations work for different types of body shape. And it's a much faster process than you would imagine by just going on, on data alone. Just a quick follow-up before I go to Heike. What about aspirational fashion? We know about fashion magazines, about how we want beautiful models and skinny. And I've, I've spoken to so many different brands and they tell me, you know, if I'm, if I'm a little overweight, I do not want to see myself in an app when I, while I'm shopping. And that's why we have vanity fit, you know. We have sizes, oh, you're a size two when you're supposed to be an eight. Yeah, sure, I mean, I think that there's, there's a difference. There's about sort of selling a lot of, of stuff and there's also about the branding stuff. So I feel that, you know, online is not going to take over forever, but it's about actually helping people understand a fit and size relationship that's personal to them, which doesn't mean that you can't have the aspirational as well. And certainly the store and the branding should be about driving that aspiration. But already you've seen some really interesting stuff. I mean, I, I really like what Rent the Runway does. So, you know, they are actually doing what people look like in the clothes for really high-end luxury brands. And it's had a real, you know, it's been taken and it's worked really well for them the public have been um, generating loads of images. It's helped them make better sales. Um, and I think ultimately the, the luxury in the market has got to sort of cotton on to it being something that works for people and it will drive sales in the long run. It's like Olapic too, right? I don't know if you guys know Olapic, but it's about user generated, how you look in, that, in those clothes. So you and the robot round, why? Why did, you, why did you dismiss the notion of me uploading my image and you just focusing on the garment? I guess we missed we missed the robot part in so I'll, I'll just describe what we do very shortly those pictures that you saw before on those those models on different shapes and sizes those were done using the proprietary shape-shifting robotic mannequins we pr press the button they grow muscular slim or petite I just wish my, my, my own scientist would make me a button and I can press and my own body would, would do all of this. And we literally make thousands of photos of each garment on different body shapes and sizes. It's a very cheap and, and fast process. But this is how you saw those photos. But Liz, before I answer your question about whether the consumers should be able to see their own face or not, let me clarify one thing. When it comes to all of those widgets out there that allow the retailers provide the fitting information. I believe, uh, besides Meetel and FitzMe, there's only one, one company which is uh, almost as strong as, as FitzMe, TrueFit, in the US. Um, That's what I was thinking about, <coughs> yes, Bill, well, yeah. I, I, I could brag, right now, FitzMe has more clients, like Hugo Boss and QVC than TrueFit, and, uh, and probably more consumers. Uh, know, what, been, what did I just agree been. to? What did you say? <laughs> <laughs> I was like shaking my head, and you made a statement. <laughs> uh, let me brag. Um, but uh, now it's, it's about the Meetel lets you consumers upload your own face. We don't. We made that choice. We, we don't actually let you to do that. You don't? No. You used <laughs> Not to. Not anymore. That, that, it wasn't that used say. enough. Okay. Oh. All right. So, um, so that was a Tesco try when you abandoned that feature? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we, we saw uh, some, some gamey elements into this. But in the end, you know what? Retailers, they don't sell you fashion. They sell you dreams. They sell, sell aspirations. And you don't want to, you, you want to put some, some element of almost emotional disconnect between the sizing information and, uh, and that particular dress 
that you really want to desire to buy? Two things I want to tackle before I turn to the audience. Think of some questions I want you to participate. Two things, ROI of this whole thing and uh, the data, okay? So ROI first. The ROI is very interesting. I see some people taking notes and let's share some numbers, right? So when you play in this space, I have a feeling that if you're a retailer out there, if you're a brand and you're not doing anything, and if you do anything at all, it sounds to me that returns drop by what, like 30%? So, I mean, for, from my perspective, it, the ROI is it, it's quite clear. So, you know, we're not in the market to make something which is a gimmick. It's all about being a transactional utility that makes better sales. So, for us, it's about driving those core metrics to, to deliver net sales impact for the retailer. And if we don't deliver net sales impact, they get their money back. It's quite simple as that. So that's how we've always been positioned. And that's why we wanted, and, and when I built the business model, it was all about driving down the cost of being able to digitize garments so that we could have a performance-based model with the retailers so that our incentives were aligned with them. If we make better sales for them, they make more money. So low cost money. of digitized garments, so production, increased conversion? Increased conversion, increased basket size, reduced returns. And the only way to measure that properly is to do pure A-B testing where you can see bottom line impact. Because it's not just about having an impact, it's about having a material impact. And that means that people have to be using the technology. So Tom, so you uh, need to have a, would you get to share some of your numbers? Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. So I mean, for one of our retailers, we had an, an A-B level uh, nine and a half percent reduction in return rate um, with another one of our retailers you know double digit increases in uh, conversion and basket size and similarly reduction in returns except not yet significant number of um, returns data points because of the fact they have such a low volume return so in emerging markets you're seeing return rates of less than five percent Germany is about 60 70% UK is um, 30 to 50 depending on where they are in the luxury drop chain. yours uh, Henry Lloyd published a case study. The returns among FitzMe users were down 70%. That's 7-0. Across the Jesus board... Uh, but, <laughs> okay. That's cherry-picking. Cherry I, I, do, I do admit it's, it's the best result I've seen so far. Um, uh, in, in comparison, Hosen Curtis's case study, all available on our website, 35% reduction in returns. Overall, pretty green, 77% reduction in FIT-related returns. On conversions across the board, um, FitzMe users have about two times higher conversion rates uh, compared to non-users. The, the difficult thing, sorry, you know, the thing yeah, you've got to do is put it in... apples and in oranges when you compare was, brands, yeah. No, 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 no I was going to say uh, double-digit and triple-digit return and uh, impact rates don't really mean anything because of the fact that a one, you know, ASOS have said a 1% reduction in returns is worth 10 million to them. A 1% increase in conversion is worth 44 million to them. So. Giving statistics don't, doesn't really mean anything unless you're talking about how many people are using technology and then are you having a material impact, not just creaming off the top because the most engaged users are actually going to use their technology. So it will seem like people who are using their technology have a much higher rate than other people when actually you need to look at the bottom line. Are you having a bottom line impact across both groups of people? So are you moving actually a 1% increase? That's so the, what you're looking for. The ROI of the tech? Production, conversion, and returns. So less, less question. So we open to a few minutes of questions, and then we have the two last demos, right? Data. I see that thrown around over and over. I used to be part of one of the largest uh, data pools of public tech company, and I remember having meetings like, what do we do with the data, right? 
um, okay, you have the data, you have all kinds of uh, data of people. How can you impact the industry with this data? Do you have a data plan? Let me, let me uh, give you some examples as, as fits me. When you as consumers go at Hugo Boss's site, the Thomas Pink site, and use fits me, you will enter your own body measurements. Uh, because of this, we are probably now one of the largest body measurements databases in the world. Um, Daily Mail had the article Fat Map of Britain that was based on FitzMe's data. Now, this data is a gold mine for, for the fashion, fashion industry. Uh, let me have just one example. For one of the British retailers, we looked at their consumer data and we we said, well, hey, if you make your sleeves just slightly longer for your German market, your sales in Germany would increase 20%. That's more than their whole online sales was. The, the, when we looked at the UK, their home market customers, we found out that so many uh, really slim, slim people were walking into the stores and walking out without the purchase. Literally, this type of technology allows the retailers see inside the fitting room, see the reasons why customers make the purchase decisions, and more importantly, when they decide not to buy. We, we literally get to see those customers inside the fitting rooms without getting arrested for that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the key, the key is the data, really. So, and I think that we haven't even uh, scratched the surface of, of the potential. So, you know, we already see things like we know that a UK-based customer is tolerant to about four and a half centimeters in terms of fit before they'll send something back versus a Brazilian customer at seven and a half centimeters or thereabouts. We know, for example, that and help to make a buying decision for a customer where they weren't messaging hard enough on their largest size customers who were too big trying to buy that so they have two choices which they can make now which is either be more harsh on their messaging to stop that garment being bought by certain people of a certain size or actually build a bigger size um, and also with retailers we're doing some really interesting stuff around shape analysis so in terms of the fit block of people buying a certain size knowing what percentage are, are the right sort of fit relationship and where they're therefore getting return rates across people who are more inverted triangle versus rectangular versus um, pear-shaped and apple-shaped, etc. So being able to help the retailer start to understand actually maybe they need to have more dynamic fit blocks across their ranges to, to change and match up against their actual demographic. I'm and sure you can revolutionize the denim industry in Latin America. We have major problems in that Please. category. Did you know here in the UK, the, the bigger people tend to, uh, tend to wear tighter garments oh, as the a UK? general rule. Oh, really? So we, we, we'll follow up, go to Heike's blog on interesting facts about UK fit map. Uh, so on questions, if you have a question, the mic's coming your way. Mic is important here instead of just shouting out because this is a podcast. It's going to be distributed uh, through iTunes. So anyone with a question? Yes, mic over here. Hi, Liz. It's um, Lizzie Zeta. Hi, guys. Hi. Um, I just wanted to know, what um, sort of brands are you working with at the moment? Are they low-end, middle-end, high-end, or are you working across the, across the board? Um, so from my perspective, we've always wanted to focus with mass market retailers to, to be able to deal with mass volume. So I've always wanted to target initial early adopters being the Facebook generation and then feeling that actually late adopters would end up being the luxury brands. So partly because of that whole aspirational play. So it was always going to be luxury that came came later. So for me, it's about mass market retailers. It's actually about online pure plays, and it's actually about mail order customers. So people who are, who are used to shopping in a certain way first and getting volume. It's, um, I'm, I'm 
I'm lucky that we've got the luxury brands like Carbonejuto Zenia that have helped us to drive the product to, to look and feel like a, like it's it's there for luxury market. But truth is, uh, from business perspective, obviously you you want to target those mass markets. Say saying this, I was you know smallest retailers they pay few hundred pounds a month, whereas our largest clients end up paying, paying tens of thousands of pounds a month. So that also gives a perspective on the whether it's suitable for small retailers, the answer is yes. For big ones, the answer is, is obviously yes. And uh, last question, the models that you use, can you, do they animate? Do they walk and do they do 360? Can you see them 360 yeah, so, degrees? Yes, so we do 360 degrees. So you can spin around 360 degrees. You can layer different outfits. We don't do animation. So for me, animation ends up being a little bit creepy. Plus, actually, in terms of delivering a fast um, solution to the end user customer, if you start to add a lot of animation stuff, you're talking about a lot of computing power and a lot of traffic down the internet. So it's about providing the, the sort of maximum bang for your buck, really, and that is with, without animation at this it's stage. Just sometimes it's good to see how the fabric moves and how it will behave and the properties of it, and you can only see that when it moves. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's well and true. I mean, I think that's where the interaction on terms of multi-channel and omni-channel comes into play. So users will be using, I think, stores more to understand and learn and educate themselves about fabric, movement and touch. And uh, they'll use online to do essentially their mass market purchasing. Um, and actually there's an interesting fact. So I remember going into one of the, the big high street retailers and they said, actually the catwalk is proven not to increase conversion. Um, it's just a, a keeping up with the Joneses play, and that is where you do see movement. Uh, I'm wondering, from a technological point of view, um, how do you integrate? Does it, well, is it sort of like a plugin script or something, or is it enhanced? Does it make it worth it for smaller retailers as well, or is there some sort of cost that only makes it worth the while for larger ones? I think our smallest, uh, our smallest retailer has uh, annual sales of uh, maybe two million pounds. Uh, I think the, if, if the sales are below that, then probably uh, I can give you some free tips after this, how, how, to, how to solve the fit issue using uh, different uh, methods. Um, uh, uh, I, I wanted to add a little bit on, on your question, though. It was about the 360 degree, and that was a huge philosophical difference uh, that we have. We found out, when I touched before, the aspirational uh, issue of garments, and when you show the people from from this angle, um, we found out that that uh, some people would would have um, have trouble um, uh, uh, liking how they they look like. Therefore, FitzMe has decided we we only look this side and this side. It uh, it actually flattens the the uh, some body shape, so it it creates more beautiful, more fashion-forward images. Whereas this this look is, th you know, this is something you never experience in brick and mortar fitting rooms either. You, you it's difficult to see yourself from from that side, right? Yeah. That's interesting. Last question. So can, okay. I, can I just follow up on that one? Sure, so sure. Certainly. Um, so in terms of um, plug-in, it's 10-line JavaScript with code, so it's less than a day in terms of integration. And actually, we work with some retailers who've got probably about 10 customers. So we're coming at, at the market from both the mass market retailers in terms of how we work, but also through our Singtel relationship in, e in Asia, we, we have a Shopify plug-in. So if you're a small, tiny retailer, you can do it all yourself. So And we'll be coming up through the long tail as well. Last one. 
You've all spoken about international markets and I'm very interested to know, obviously, like being online, um, you're automatically you know, able to be international as a company. And I just want to find out a bit more about how that affects your business. And did you actually plan to, to have um, customers in different countries or th is there a specific country that you um, kind of target? I mean, I, I certainly wanted to be global day one. So I, I, I wasn't interested in a business that couldn't be like that. And I think actually a lot of businesses in the UK suffer from thinking the domestic market is, is big enough and to only work in that market first. Um, I wanted, you know, if, if you start looking at the global market, you go where the most exciting customers are and, and the customers that are growing the fastest. And that's where we've been drawn. So we've been drawn to Brazil, drawn to Asia because they're emerging markets growing very quickly. So if you like, you know, somebody, you know, Liz asked me earlier about the US and I, my, my response is that Are we're being... Are coming over? Yeah, well, the thing is we're being paid to go to Asia and we're being paid to go to Brazil. I always feel that I'd have to pay to go to the US. <laughs> so that's... The US will come, but it's one of those things where for the US, go big or go home, so... Yeah, I agree. Ready. I agree with Tom. You know, when when you think of local markets versus global markets, uh, thinking small takes about just just as much energy, energy as taking thinking large or thinking big. Therefore, you have to think big to start with. But speaking of international, when, when I think of Fitzmis, where Fitzme goes, obviously we want to go uh, international. But when I'm looking at our retailers, then I'm seeing suddenly how much they have expanded internationally after using Fitzme as, as literally when buying across the borders, it, returning is more difficult. The sizing is easy, even more. Uh, wild so uh, literally we've seen some of our retailers jump the international sales uh, 102 percent that's uh, pretty amazing nothing else fits we need to go so, <laughs> so this is it for fit so time for some demos now thank you thank so you. much Heike. thank you tom so hello my name is uh, runo reistrup i'm the ceo of depop um some of you know might know know depop already um it's uh, it's taken off quite well in, in here in the uk uh, for those who don't, uh, we call Depop the new fun way uh, to buy and sell desirable items just from your pocket. Now, why desirable? Um, because people will see what you're selling. This is not Gumtree where you can put something for sale and nobody knows it's you. Here, everyone's going to see it's it's your shop. It's, it's like having your own pop-up shop. So obviously, you only want to sell stuff that, um, that you want to relate to you. The way that... Um, you can use Depop. Anyone can use Depop. Um, it's free. Um, you can use it to buy from anyone selling there. Um, you buy straight inside the app. It's a mobile-only play. Right now, it's iOS only. Um, so good, we're in the Apple Store. Um, you find items by following. <laughs> you find items by following your uh, your friends, people you like. Uh, we all know we have. We have style icons, both the big ones and the small ones. On Depop, you can just follow whoever you want to look like or whoever you want to be like. And whenever they put something for sale, you'll be the first to know it's in your feed. It's like Instagram, just with a buy button. Um, you can sell. Um, we, we tend to try to get the selling experience below 15 seconds. So if you can't sell an item within 15 seconds, it's not fun. Um, that's, you can't do that on eBay. Um, and then it's a, it's a social place. So shopping was, all, it was always social. Um, you might go in there to buy stuff. You might also just throw some likes and some comments or chat. So the idea evolved 
from a creative mind uh, that then met a more tech mind. So Simon Beckerman, who founded Depop, and myself were kind of where the um, the fashion and tech intersects. So Simon comes from uh, a background of launching a uh, lifestyle hipster magazine in Milan, was doing pretty well. On the back of that, he uh, he launched the sunglasses company um, called Super Super Retro Future. Again, some of you might know it. Um, lots of celebrities picked it up for some reason. Uh, so it, it started going pretty well. And on the back of that, he thought, well, we, we should have, we should we should be doing something different. And right at that moment, he said, well, actually, shopping and buying stuff from each other uh, is, is still pretty old school. It hasn't really caught up with mobile. It hasn't really caught up with uh, with what mobile did with, uh, with the coming of uh, of Pinterest and other other uh, kind of nice mobile apps, Instagram f for one. Um, at the same time, I was involved in uh, in a startup back in Scandinavia, uh, launching one of the first mobile social networks. Uh, it got bought by a company called Vodafone, so I ended up uh, running products at Vodafone for a while, and then uh, coming back and, and joining this company as a CEO. Now we're 11 people uh, out of shortages, list set, and that's where most of the, uh, the fashion startups are, are, are going. And uh, we're still executing on the same vision. So we, we think shopping should be mobile because everything should be mobile. Uh, the time when you use your PC for anything else than, than work is rapidly coming to an end. Um, it should be fun. Good. Oh, I already told you how it works. <laughs> it should be fun. Well, where did the fun in shopping go with, uh, with, the, uh, with the arrival of, of eBay and Amazon? It's, it's useful, it's, it's efficient, but it's not fun. And it needs to be social. Shopping's always been social. So how do you, how do you get off uh, into a market like this? So we, we, we're occupying a, a pretty new space. You all know the, the bottom half here is the, uh, is the good old online retailers. And the top left corner is what was called social shopping one year, two years ago. Super interesting category where you buy from retailers, but you discover through your friends. And Depop is in, the, in a category where you discover through your friends and you buy through your friends or peer to peer. Uh, how do we know we have a market? Uh, this is how we know we have a market. Just do a Twitter search. I love this one. My name is Hannah and I have a Depop addiction. Um, then you know you're on, onto something and then we're growing pretty fast. Uh, Main drivers of growth are getting influential sellers, getting people with lots of social media clout, and just harnessing the built-in social uh, social elements of the app. So here's some some examples. Katie Erie is a pretty good, not super famous designer. She did the men's fashion line for Kanye West, so she's she's okay. Uh, she's taken her. Um, <laughs> she's taken her, her, her garments onto the uh, onto the catwalk, and then from there they go straight onto Depop. She sells around 30 items per day when she really wants to, so so she's doing quite well. Um, this is Cara Ferrani. She has a blog called The Blonde Salad. She's turned into a bit of an Instagram phenomenon with 1.8 million Instagram followers. Her dog has 30,000 followers. That's much more more than I have, and uh, and she started to use Depop as well. And those kind of things obviously make it make it grow. It helps if you have a bit of buzz. So we have uh, Renzo Rosso from uh, Diesel as a, an investor. We have uh, Luca Marsotto from uh, from uh, the Boss Group, and uh, we have some pretty interesting people joining our, our launch party. As you can see, um, having Kieran Knightley to your launch party helps as well. 
So um, how does that turn into numbers? We're still early on in the journey. So we have 170,000 users. Um, that's not a lot. Um, what is a lot is that half of them are still active every day. And they spend eight minutes per day in there. Um, they've listed 1.7 million items for sale. They're worth 50 million euros now in total. Quarter million has been sold, making our users 10 million in total so far. And um, then they're using Depop as a social media as well. <laughs> lots of likes, lots of messages, lots of follows. Um, we're growing around doubling every three months. Um, hopefully that's going to go even faster now. Um, the, the users are doubling. The, um, the items are, are quadrupling every three months. So in that sense, Depop gets better and better. How old is Depop? Uh, well, Depop uh, started very early, very small in Milan. Um, it came to London nine months ago. Um, it started 18 months ago. So, um, so we're, we're still quite young, but also been around for a while. Um, so what I was going to say is that apart from growing and the, and the app becoming a little bit better as we grow and more users coming on board, next steps for us is, is to go global. Um, we're, we're quite big in Milan and Italy. Um, we're growing really fast in the UK and we're going after uh, the US and, and uh, Sao Paulo and a few of the other markets now. And then um, the ones of you who don't have an iPhone, um, you'll be fine in a week's time when we launch the Android version. Thank Good. you. Good. Thank you. So I have time for one question for Depop. Hi. Um, how do you monetize Depop? Uh, so we, uh, we don't charge you for listing an item, but when it sales and you choose to transact inside the, uh, the Depop platform using PayPal and be safe, we take 10% as a, as a success fee. Got it. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. The instruction manual for the Sinclair QL, a consumer-facing technology product. The instruction manual for the iPhone 5, a consumer-facing technology product. The annual revenues of Sinclair Research, the company behind the Sinclair QL, between 1984 and 1993, where the company effectively disappeared. The annual revenues of Apple Incorporated between 1984 and 2013, where in 2012, they had a stint as the world's most valuable company. And you made it happen. All this was your choice. Your choice to choose a company that was trying to make products that could come with instruction manuals that look like this and not this. And we've all been told some reasons as to why we made this choice. The products are designed in California, don't you know? But the underlying reason was this, the structure of your brain. And there are two parts that every technology product talks to. The first is the part that's built to work things out. It's really enjoyable to stretch when you're doing a Sudoku, but we as humans hate to be forced to use it when we don't have to. And this happens when you're trying to do something. And you know exactly what you want to do, the, the interface of whatever technology that you're using gets in the way. It slows you down and it makes you work. The same kind of work that you were doing when you had to pick up one of the instruction manuals from the Sinclair QL and read it to find out how to move a file from one folder to the next. 
and we hate this kind of unnecessary work. The other part of the brain is where you feel. Feeling is not only this thing that makes life juicy, it's also effortless to do. And when a piece of technology is built to be intuitive, it's this part of the brain that it's talking to. And it feels good, because you're doing more, but you're working less. And that's exactly what Apple spends all its time thinking about. And it's why you'll probably go out and buy more Apple products, and it's why you probably hate Windows 8 if you've tried it. We're Shuffle Hub. We're transforming the experience of browsing shops online. And everything I've just been through is exactly what we believe. Let's take a look at the conventional experience of browsing shops today. Work. Online shopping makes you work too hard. When you select a category, first there are drop-down menus. Then you have to read the drop-down menu and decide what you want to see, which means you have to know what you want to view. But humans don't always know what they want. When you click on a category, there are more filters and more choices. Then you finally get to see some products and actually feel something. And you think the work would be done, but it's not. To get to the next page of products, you have to click a fantastically small next or page two. And it's not just one site, it's every site. They're all built the same way, they're all built around a database, and they're not built around how humans really are, meaning it's a browsing experience that's ripe for disruption. Let's take a look at ShuffleHub. <clears throat> ShuffleHub lets you shuffle instead of work. When you turn up, you do have to make one choice, and that's men or women. And then you start to see. There are no menus and no choices, just the shuffle button. Every time you press it, a shuffle takes place. And each shuffle is a random display of products from established retailers. This brings online shopping a lot closer to real-world shopping, where products are laid out in front of you and you don't have to choose what to see. And often it's that thing that was totally outside your train of thought that catches your eye and you end up buying. So ShuffleHub is great when you don't know what you want. It's great because it lets you get deeper into sites and it removes the compartmental barriers stemming from pages, menus and choices. But sometimes you do know what you want. And when you do, we have filters. Our filters consist of big buttons with big text so you can easily select one thing, for example, bags, and shuffle through that. Or you can bring a lot more detail to your filters, and we let you do something that conventional online stores don't. You can combine categories. So if I'm going on holiday and I want to get my beachwear in order, I can filter for sunglasses, swim shorts, and sandals, and view them all together instead of moving from one category to the next. ShuffleHub lets you browse all your stores in one place so you no longer have to hop from shop to shop and navigate through menus every time. We've launched with ASOS, Selfridges, Topshop, Topman, and Urban Outfitters. And as well as being able to browse all your shops together, you can just focus on one store. So if ASOS is your favorite shop, you can now use ShuffleHub to completely transform the way you browse it. We plan to introduce new retailers quickly, but only established brands that our users know and trust. We at ShuffleHub are super lazy and we've used this skill to try and build some of the best lazy features on the web. Let's start with the shuffle button. It is big. It sits in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen, so if I'm holding a mobile phone or a tablet and watching the TV, I can comfortably hit it with my right-hand thumb, making it the perfect second screen companion. And if I'm using a laptop, all I have to do to shuffle is hit spacebar, the biggest key on the keyboard. Another feature we built is history. To make sure you don't skip past any products you wanted to buy, 
Uh, we store your recent shuffles above you. Just scroll up to see them. This means you can shuffle fast and freely without worrying about missing a thing. Another super lazy feature we built comes into play when you're viewing a product. You can click anywhere to go back. You can click on the product, you can click above the product, you can click to the left of the product, it doesn't matter where. But it does mean you don't have to move your mouse. And the only thing that we're loading is a bigger image. So there's no need to wait for a bunch of unnecessary HTML to wait to see an item in more detail. And we know these features are better than what's there. And the reason that we know is that we've tested them. But we didn't want to test them on a regular brain. We wanted to test them on a worst case scenario brain. So we've been getting our friends drunk, making them sleep over, and waking them up nice and early to perform hungover user tests to make sure the Shuffle Hub really is the purest and simplest browsing experience on the web. As well as the continued growth in e-commerce, purchases from mobile phones and tablets are up over 100% in the last year alone. Our thumb size functionality and focus on fast product discovery means that we're in the perfect position to take advantage of these trends. We're currently monetizing through affiliate sales. This means we get a cut of any spend that we generate. Right now, that's around 5%. Our long-term vision is to make the entire online shopping journey beautiful. And the Shuffle Hub we've shown you today, focused on browsing, is just the first part of that. We see so many major technical challenges facing online shopping that we feel really don't have wonderful solutions. Personalized product recommendations, saving the products you like, social commerce, and the checkout experience. We will rework these features in the same way we've done for browsing, building them first on Shuffle Hub and then pushing them out as tools that any online store can plug into, creating the Facebook Connect for online shopping, the platform that holds e-commerce together. We launched Shuffle Hub three months ago. We're over 100,000 shuffles in. We have a lead investor for our seed round, and we're soon to launch the next iteration of the product. We're really excited to be transforming the conventional, menu-filled, fragmented online shopping experience with one-button browsing, all your shops in one place, shopping when you don't know what you want, and filters when you do. So go on. Press it. Whoa. <laughs> so sit down, sit down. So let's wrap up. Did I get a dead mic? So let me get sure. So let's wrap up with a couple questions for them, and then me telling you where's the party at. How's that, huh? Okay. Um, so how did you guys secure your seed, run, uh, seed funding investment then? Uh, it was kind of madness beforehand. We, weren't, we, we, had, we had lots of different ideas of what we wanted to build, but we actually had a meeting with uh, a, a woman called Sophia from Index Ventures, who, who kind of, we showed her all our crazy ideas, and she was like, you guys are kind of talking about crazy ideas, like focus more, and we kind of, just spend the Christmas thinking about it and much more honed long-term product vision uh, and just went around and then we got our lead investor and he set us up with lots of other angels to see and it seems to be going pretty well. We're not, we're not, we're not asking for a huge round either, just 75K, uh, which, is, which is not big in the world of internet things. Okay, investors in the audience, take note. Who else? Uh, just wanted to ask, how do you link your payment system to uh, your software? And also, I'm left-handed, so what about for me? <laughs> we, uh, we take a firm stance against left-handed people. Uh, no, we don't. <laughs> the, nec the next iteration actually has a, a very big button. You will be able to enjoy it more than you can currently enjoy the, uh, the first one. Um, in terms of payment, right now we don't take payment. Right now we, you click through 
to the ASOS website to buy an ASOS product. And, and in, the, in the long run, uh, it's about making relationships with the partners. There's a company called List, uh, which, is also, which has made deals that are similar. Uh, and we know it can be done, and we just got to go and do it. All right, so unified checkout, which is something so important if I'm really, really, really lazy. That's right. Okay, <laughs> you'll be getting that from List. No, no, no. That they've done it already. We'll be building it ourselves. Oh, okay. So you'll be ripping off from Chris. That that's right. Okay, cool. All right. So any more questions? Anybody? No. All right. Thank you so much, Shuffle Hub. Thank you. So, last slide. So that's that's where the party's at. Uh, I'm gonna head there right now. If you have questions for Decode Fashion, if you want to know more, join me there. And please keep in touch, join the team. I'd love to know more about you. Uh, thank you so much for coming tonight. I really appreciate it. Have a good night.